Daniel chapter 5. Let us pray for the blessing of our Lord upon the reading of His Holy Word. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would attend Your Word with power, that You would make it clear to us, that You would point us to the Savior, that You would convict us of sin, that you would encourage us on to love and to good deeds. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. And now Daniel chapter 5. The word of the Lord is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of the the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, and have a chain of gold round his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, 
whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold round your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put round his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about sixty-two years old. Thus far the reading of God's word. You know, there are two things that you can expect to see in almost every pirate story. The first is buried treasure. What's a pirate story without buried treasure? And the second is, you know, 
that the buried treasure will be marked how? With an X. In the children's pirate stories, it's actually a huge black X in the sand. And we wonder why we even need a map. In adult stories, there's a map with a X that marks the spot. Now you're saying to yourself, what in the world do pirate stories have to do with Daniel and handwriting on the wall? Well, this. You see, in ancient days, when they wrote in scrolls, when they had all capital letters, no punctuation, there were no laser printers. You couldn't print things in bold. You couldn't have yellow highlighters. You didn't have underlining even. So what did you do to emphasize something? Well, there was an ancient technique called a chiasm, which is a fancy Greek letter word name for X marks the spot. You would arrange something in an X, so your eyes would be drawn where? To the center. That's exactly what we have in the beginning of the book of Daniel. You may recall that we have said that chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. They're cordoned off for the nations to see. And if you think about it, we looked in chapter 2 about four kingdoms represented in a statue. In weeks to come, we'll look in chapter 7 at four kingdoms represented by four beasts. Two and seven. And then if we look at chapter 3, we remember that the command was to worship or perish. Be thrown into the fiery furnace. We'll see next week, chapter 6 is again worship or perish. Worship or be thrown into the lion's den. Chapter 4 was a testimony to the pride of man thinking that he was the one that was in control and sovereign instead of God. That's also exactly what we have here in chapter 5. You see, chapters 4 and 5 form the X, the center of our story, because as we've said before, that's really what Daniel is about. It's not about whether there are 393 years or 392 years between this event and that event in prophecy. It's not about trying to figure out who the ten clay toes are that aren't even mentioned in Daniel. It is not about finding obscurities or secret messages that you can impress others at cocktail parties with. It's about how the Lord God of Israel is the Lord of the nations and of the universe. And that tells us that God is sovereign and it comforts His people in the midst of their worst distress. And so just as last week we saw the pride of man exalted and then humbled to repentance, this week we will see in God's sovereignty the pride of man humbled and judged. And so what I would like us to see here this morning are three things. First, I would like us to see the arrogance of idolatry. How idolatry is an arrogant thing. And then secondly, we will see the ignorance of of idolatry, how idolatry makes us ignorant of what is around us. And then the third thing we will see is the sentence on idolatry, how God judges those who would lift up idols against Him. 
Well, let's begin then by looking at the arrogance of idolatry. As we think first about the setting of this story, there is a very quick transition. If you look back up a verse or two, you see that Nebuchadnezzar is just brought back out of the wilderness, restored back to the throne, and he is able to know that the Lord God has humbled him. And without any transition at all, chapter 5 begins with King Belshazzar. Now, we who are used to stories have questions that come to our mind. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? How did he reign? How did Belshazzar come to the throne? How was he trained? Who was his mother? What's going on in the world? But you see, the Bible isn't interested in any of those questions. It moves right on at breakneck speed because the Bible is not interested in pure history. What the Bible is interested in is the spiritual conflict occurring in history. And so the next phase of this is Belshazzar. You see, there is a very quick transition here on purpose to show to us that the same kind of pride that welled up in Nebuchadnezzar is present in Belshazzar. Now, who is Belshazzar? Belshazzar is the son of the Babylonian king Nabonius. Nabonius. I know the text says that his father is Nebuchadnezzar, but as you go through the Old Testament, you will see that there is no word in the Hebrew for grandfather. We are often told that someone is someone's father, even if it's a great-grandfather. It means ancestor. And so, this is important because, you see, chapter 5 was a big aha for all of the skeptics. You see, until about... A century ago, Belshazzar didn't exist. We had no record of him. We had no idea that he existed. As a matter of fact, we knew that there was a man named Nabodnius who was king of Babylon at the time of the Persian takeover. And so the skeptics said, well, of course, this is something somebody made up. There wasn't even this king. You bunch of Christian fools, you believe anything anybody writes. If you really studied history and science, you would know, until, of course, we came across a cylinder that described a king by the name of Belshazzar, who had been given by his father as he traveled away to a different part of the empire. He had been placed in charge as co-regent. And then all of a sudden, oh, there really is a Belshazzar. You see, he was king, but he was not a king of any accomplishment at all. He was actually just a co-regent. His father had placed him in charge of the capital and the army because, quite frankly, his father couldn't be bothered with them. He was off somewhere in Arabia trying to unite Babylon by religion. He was trying to go one further than his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had done. He was trying to raise up the worship of the moon god to replace the other deities at the top of the pyramid. Another situation which had failed. What else is going on here in this story that's important for us to know? Turn with me, if you would, to the end of this chapter. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This tells us something that is important for the context of our story. You see, 
just a few days before this event, the Babylonian army had been crushed at the town of Sippar, about 50 miles from Babylon. The army had been crushed. Belshazzar's father had fled. And the Persian army was besieging Babylon. The worst defeat the empire had ever faced had just happened. They were in the greatest danger they had ever been. And Belshazzar responds by throwing a big party. Does that give you a little bit of an insight into who this man is? The Persian army is at his very doorstep and his response is to throw the wildest party Babylon has ever seen. And what about this feast? This feast is completely out of control. Because you see, he sets himself up and a thousand of his lords and the idea is basically to have a drinking contest. It's not just enough to drink. It's not just enough to be drunk. It's to glory in your ability to drink massive quantities. Think through this again, the type of man this is. Here is a man who is supposed to be king, who is supposed to protect his subjects. The army is about to attack, and he is throwing a kegger. He's trying to throw a party in which we revel in drunkenness. It's not even a tasteful party. And the king himself wants to show off that he is the king of the drinkers. That's his skill. Others may lead armies. His grandfather built temples and hanging gardens, but he, he can put down a jug of wine. This is the man who is king and who's proud of it. You see, it's outrageous and it's also foolish. He should be preparing the army. He should be bringing up morale. He should be drilling the troops saying, I know we've had a defeat, but we can beat the Persians. We have these massive walls. Think of the glory of our past victories. He should be providing something between a speech from Patton and an encouragement. But instead, he's drinking. And this might also be not just a sense of his arrogance or his foolishness, it might also be a sign of his arrogance. You remember when we first looked at Daniel, I described to you how big the walls of Babylon were, that they were wide enough to drive two chariots on. You could have two chariot races. The thickest walls, perhaps, that had ever been seen. And we can imagine Belshazzar sitting in his chair saying, well, you know, so what, the army got beat. We're safe. No one could breach the walls. Right? Whenever you're watching a movie or reading in a book, and one of the main characters says, well, it's impossible. No one can breach these walls. We almost expect someone to walk up next to Belshazzar and say, I do not think that word means what you think it means. I do not think so. You see, he thinks there is nothing that can possibly be done. And so what he does is he throws this party. This is his accomplishment. He doesn't win victories. But he throws a party. But he goes beyond this in his arrogance and his blasphemy. He says, you know those vessels from that Jewish people and their God. You know the God that we beat. Bring them in here and let's use those 
to drink in. And we can imagine that this is perhaps his way of giving good morale to the troops. Let's make fun of every people and God we've defeated. How can we do that? Well, let's start by drinking out of holy vessels. You see, Nebuchadnezzar at least had the sense to take those vessels from the temple, the the cups, the platters, the pitchers, and to place them in another temple, a temple of his God. Belshazzar says, well, let's not break the fine china. Let's bring in those vessels. And let's show the Jews what their God is like, how powerful we are. And so he brings these in. But one other thing I think is important for us to see is it is not the alcohol that makes him do this. You know, oftentimes we come to a text like this and we think that the the lesson we should take from it is don't drink. When you drink, you do dumb things. Belshazzar is full of dumb things, even were he stone cold sober. This is an expression of his heart. You see, the wine has not given him things to do. It has revealed his mind and his heart before others. This is the kind of king that he is. And he's not satisfied with a single blasphemy. He goes for broke. Because not only does he drink out of these vessels, excuse me, he uses them to praise the metal gods, the idols of the day. This is what he has done. There's a problem for him, though, because an uninvited guest appears immediately, verse 5 says. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the wall. And we sense, again, this connection with chapter 4, don't we? Because as Nebuchadnezzar was just speaking on his lips how glorious the things were that he had done, judgment fell on him. And now, as soon as he is praising these idols who are nothing, Judgment falls on Belshazzar. And opposite the lampstand, a human hand writes. And this word for lampstand is only really used here. And I want you to get the sense of a spotlight in a darkened hall. You see, God picks the absolutely perfect spot where everyone can see and there will be no mistake. This is no parlor trick. This is no false omen. As a matter of fact, the king actually sees the hand writing the words. There can be no denial about the judgment. It's kind of like when your king starts running around like a wolf or a cow, you can't really spin that in the media. And that's the case here too. There is no way to spin this. There is no way to describe. And we... See this from the king's reaction. Great fear comes over him. He loses the color in his face. His thoughts are troubled. And even his physical nature is changed. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The phrase, his limbs gave way, actually it says his knots became untied. And there's a very good chance that what this means is the king wet himself. That's how scared he is. That's how foolish he is. His knots become untied. Now, one of the things that we should be be aware of and be thinking about, that anxiety does not equal conversion. The king here is experiencing great physical and mental anxiety. 
But remember what his reaction is as we go through here. You see, as, as we speak to others of the things of God, we should not trust merely to whitened faces or hands that tremble. Physical symptoms are not conversion. Because you see, Belshazzar has a solution to all this. He's scared. He's scared out of his pants. And what does he do? The same old solution. You know it by well now. You almost think that the magicians and the Chaldeans are on speed dial. It happens yet again. Now this is, this is almost becoming a political cartoon in the Bible. Because even the youngest among us can look at this and say, you know, these magicians, they're not very smart. They didn't know what the dream was. They didn't know what the second dream was. They, they didn't know anything. Why is he calling them again? It's because it's bound up in his heart. It's a part of his idolatry. You see, this is part of judgment upon unbelief. It causes us to not know what's going on around us, but to get stuck in patterns. Paul describes this in Romans 1. How God gives us over to a reprobate mind. This is kind of like... The best example, and I've used this perhaps with some of you before, is this. You all know that I don't know much about mechanical things, especially cars. And on occasion, my car will make a sound that I'm not sure what it is. It'll squeal or pop or hiss. I don't know anything about cars. I don't like to work on cars. I don't want to know anything about cars. So my solution is a very simple one. I turn up the radio. And the knocking goes away. And if the knocking gets louder, there's another solution. You turn the radio louder until you can't hear anything. And you see, that is what Belshazzar's life is like. That is what the life is like for all of those who reject the living God. They see horror around them. They're afraid of the news. They're afraid of the doctor's office. They're afraid of their children at college. And what do they do? They turn up their radio. They have no solution. They don't want to have a solution. They don't want to even try to find a solution in God's Word. They simply turn up the radio. That's what Belshazzar does. This is an arrogance, which quickly leads to ignorance. You see, he doesn't know what's going on, and the queen comes in to set the record straight. It's most likely here in verse 10 that the queen, this word that's used here, is actually the queen mother. Those of you that are familiar with the queen mother from England of recent years, she's most likely either his stepmother or his mother because his queens and his concubines were all in drinking and this woman was not. She comes in and she knows full well the history of the kingdom of Babylon. She comes in She remembers the old days that Belshazzar did not, or perhaps that he had chosen to forget. And there's a little bit of a bite in her speech. Look at verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, you know King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, you know your father the king, the digs, you know, you're just co-regent. You know, your father, the one who commanded the army that crushed nations while you're sitting here? 
sauced? She says, there is one, and it is Daniel. And it's interesting how she describes it. It's, it's a wordplay. Lest you not think that the Bible is not ever funny, here is a good example of how the Bible is actually really funny. To effect, to make a point. You remember that we said earlier in verse 6 about the king's knots being untied. And there being kind of some humor involved with that. Well, look here, though, at verse 12. She says that Daniel is a one who explains riddles and solves problems. Actually, unties knots. That's Daniel's job. He unties knots. And again, in verse 16, the king says, I hear that you can give interpretation and untie knots. Maybe you can help me with my knots. My knots are out of control. Can you help me? You can almost imagine, as this was read in the synagogue, that the Jews would burst out in laughter, thinking, we were afraid of this? We were afraid of this idolatry? (laughs) He's a fool. And you see, that's what the Bible wants us to see. There's no reason for you and for me to be afraid of idolatry. It's foolishness. It's ridiculousness. You know, on one level, we need to be sober. For example, about the threat that faces our nation. But you should not go and live in fear of Islam. You should say to yourself, you know, these folks are worried in prison about which way their prayer rug faces. And if it's faced the wrong way, they get all upset and want to sue in United States court. It's ridiculous. When you think about the secularists that attack us, you think these people believe in reincarnation, that you come back as dogs and cats and rats and birds. And yet, they still eat chicken and turkey and beef. It's ridiculous. And you see, that's what the Bible wants us to see about unbelief. It's complete foolishness. You see, children, as you grow and as you go to college... There are going to be people that try and impress upon you that that's what intelligent, smart, serious people believe. That you come back as a rat one day. And when they do that to you, it's okay to giggle inside. Because it's foolishness. And the Bible says so. Well, Daniel comes in and he also is a forgotten man. Not only is Nebuchadnezzar forgotten in all of his deeds, Daniel comes in. Now, Daniel is about 80 years old at this time. He comes in only because he's bidden. You remember, all of the other magicians and Chaldeans and soothsayers, they all come in when speed dial is dialed. Daniel is not invited. And we might wonder why, when just a little bit ago, Daniel was placed in charge of all of them. You ever feel that way? You feel forgotten? Maybe forgotten by your kids or your grandchildren? Even though you know what they're going through because you've gone through it before? You ever feel like at work people have just passed you by? You're not that important anymore. Come on, old man, times have changed. No one wants your advice anymore. The young ladies. They can get it all out of this magazine or that magazine. You know, it's okay that you've had wisdom and you had children and grandchildren, but, you know, get with the times. If you've ever felt like that, then look to Daniel. 
Because that's what happened to Daniel. He's an old man that's been through a lot. And he's forgotten. But one thing that he is known for is his character. He may be forgotten in terms of problem solving, but his character stands firm. Because do you notice what the queen says? Who is to be called? It's Daniel. It's not Belteshazzar. It's not the name that he was given by Nebuchadnezzar. His character has shown for six decades. That's Daniel. That's Mr. God is my judge. That's who he is. Is that what you desire your character to be known as? That when people see you, they say, oh, that's Mr. Prayer Warrior. Whenever anything happens in our family, I tell him, oh, that's misencouragement. I'm so glad to have her around because whenever I'm around her, the toughest times don't seem so tough. That's Mr. Sure Faith. Whenever attacks come, I know I could come to him and he will straighten me out from the Scriptures and I will stand firm. You see, that's what we are called to do. And Belshazzar tries immediately to put Daniel in his place. Do you notice how he describes Daniel? He says in verse 13, Oh yeah, you're one of those prisoners. You're not the one who was in charge of all the wise men. You're not the one who helped the king. You're not the one who did this and did that. You're one of those prisoners. Oh, you probably smell too. You're a whole... Oh, you're one of those Jews, aren't you? You can almost hear the sarcasm in his voice. He's trying to put Daniel in his place because, you see, that often happens when people have no authority themselves, when they have no testimony to stand on. They live by putting other people down. And so he says, you know, I heard about you. I heard something. Something about you interpreting. Can you tell me? Can you help? And he says, you know, by the way, if you help me out, I'll give you all of these good things. And Daniel responds, in what we've seen from Daniel is a pretty uncharacteristically curt manner. I mean, he's been very courteous throughout the other chapters. And he basically says, you can keep your stinking gifts. I don't want them. Now, why would Daniel do this? He's, he's been so careful to have a good testimony to those in authority. Why does he do this? It's because Belshazzar is trying to pull a Naaman on him. You remember Naaman, who came with a truckload of presents, and he wanted to trade that for something good? Belshazzar knows he's in a tight spot. We've seen how afraid he is. And he's hoping Daniel will get him out of the tight spot if he throws money at him. And Daniel says, no, God's word is not for sale. Would that the church would be more like this today. Everywhere it seems the word of God is at sale, for sale. I watched a clip this week of a man who did what he called the money blessing dance. He told people to bring up dollar bills and throw them up on the front of the podium and he went along skipping over the money, saying, I'm blessing the money, I'm blessing the money. This is what happens in the church today. But you see, we need to stand on the Word of God like Daniel and not be bribed, whether it's for money or popularity. We need to stand on the Word of God. And Daniel informs him very bluntly. He says, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, had glory, but it was from God. 
And you should have known what happened to him. As a matter of fact, you knew. Look at verse 22. You knew. You knew that he had been an animal. Willful ignorance, he says. And then he begins to pronounce this sentence upon idolatry. You see, Belshazzar is the perfect example of an atheist. When things are going well, he's a blustering, brazen person who doesn't need anything to do with God. But the only way he can stay like that is by blotting out reality. That's what the drink is for. Do you know anyone that's like that? Maybe you're like that. Maybe you blot out reality with alcohol. Or maybe you blot out reality with long nights at work. Or maybe you blot out reality with romance novels. You see, the only way to stay free from God is to blot out reality because God is the king of the universe. And Nebuchadnezzar is consumed with fear because this sentence is pronounced specifically for him. It is carved upon the wall. Now, we might wonder what the difficulty is with interpreting this many, many tekel ufarsin or, or parson. Perhaps it was written vertically instead of horizontally. Or maybe, which is probably more likely the case, it was readable, it was just not understandable. You see, he's not looking for the dictionary definition, he's looking for the meaning. So people here know that I've said that language is not math. It's not two plus two. There, there is meaning to be found in language. You see, he needs to understand the significance of the language, and that is why Daniel can interpret it, because he knows the significance. He sees all of history with Bible eyes. That's why he can interpret it. And so what he does is, he begins a form of a covenant lawsuit against Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, against Belshazzar. Look at this in verse 22. I want you to notice how many times the word you is used. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them. You see, Daniel is looking right at Belshazzar and saying, This is for you. There is a certainty and a finality in this judgment. That's what the mene mene means. It's repeated. Mene mene tekel. Farsin or Ufarsin is just whether you include the and or not. And the gist of this message, beyond what we see here in the text, is simply this. You know, King, you will die. And you will die. And you will die. Because of your wickedness and your blasphemy. Because you see, God is not impressed with any of this. We can be too easily impressed with our idols, with the things that are bright and shiny or famous. This is something that can even be seen in the church as we have our own church superstars. People who don't 
participate in a local church because they listen to sermons on iPod. This is something that we need to move away from. It is a sign of rejecting God. Because you see, God is the one who is in complete control. It's not just that He announces what's going on. You see, we can look at this many, many tekel ufarsin and say, well, God knows when things are going to happen. No, He doesn't just know. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 137. As we prepare to conclude... By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And you remember this, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And in verse 8, they cry out, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you. And with what you have done to us, blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Who could possibly defeat Babylon? God knows. And Isaiah 13, verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. Darius the Mede was sent by God as a judgment. You see, because God is in complete control. So much so that, again, the commentators don't like this because they don't know who this Darius is. Who could he be? Well, he's Cyrus the Persian, also known as Darius the Mede. Why is he called Darius the Mede here? 62 years old. Why is this so certain? It's because of Isaiah 13. And it's because Jeremiah predicts that the Medes will crush Babylon. You see, God is not just the one who knows the future. He holds the future. The same one who predicted that there would come a Prince of Peace brought it about. Brought our Lord Jesus Christ, the only one in the history of the world whom it could be asked, many, many tekel, You have been weighed, but you are found not wanting at all. You are perfect. God is letting us know His judgment upon idolatry. He's letting us know that He is the sovereign King of the universe. He grants repentance to whom He will, and He whom He will. So the next time that you are tempted to fear for yourself for your family, for your country. Remember who is in charge. Remember that He is not only the sovereign God, but that He is the just and good God. Let us pray.